In this segment, we'll experiment with the boundaries of storytelling, featuring some of our friends, mentors, and advisors. We'll share perspectives and reframe the narratives that fall on a spectrum. We'll have unfiltered conversations around life, business, and everything in between. Between the vantage point of a deep thinker and an atomic player. Between an objective mind and a subjective heart. Between the truth teller and the truth seeker. Between two sides of the coin. Hello everyone. Today we have Mark Birch with us. Mark is a community builder, a software entrepreneur, a business development expert, and is the author of an amazing book called Community in a Box. He's a principal startup advocate at Amazon Web Services, AWS, across Asia Pacific and Japan. Mark, welcome to our show. Welcome, glad to be here and really looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> Likewise, Mark. So uh, you're currently working at AWS and you tend to share a lot of stories of how founders across the Asia Pacific uh, region benefit from building and scaling their startups on AWS. In that capacity, you tend to create a lot of content. Uh, some of the content that I have been hearing from you on Clubhouse is really awesome. So could you speak about your experience of this fascinating journey that you have been on? I guess I could speak of how I got to AWS because most of my background has been in startups in the more recent decade. So I had, I've been a founder at a HR tech company that was focused on workforce analytics. And I've been an angel investor. I've been a startup advisor to many B2B tech startups, mostly focused in the New York City tech ecosystem. And prior to AWS, I was at Stack Overflow. So some of your listeners may know Stack Overflow. If you've ever touched code, you're a developer, there's a pretty good chance that you Googled something when you had an error or an issue and you came up with this thing called Stack Overflow, which is this great repository of knowledge around all things programming. So I was there for a while. And for me, being part of startup communities has just been so integral to my existence and what gets me excited and passionate. And when I left Stack Overflow, I was going to go out on my own. And it was just in that transition time when a friend of mine who I was working with, he was a head of innovation at a big bank. He had gone over to AWS, uh, heading up uh, one of the fintech uh, groups, reached out to me and said, hey, Mark, uh, there's this role and it seems to be all about you. Like you are this role. And I said, uh, that's cool and all, but it's AWS. I'm a startup guy. He's like, no, no, it's, it's for a startup advocate. I'm like, oh, well, okay, that, that's interesting, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, every startup I know is running on AWS pretty much, but I didn't think AWS really focused on startups so much. I think it was just kind of like a default option. But Nelson said, no, just take a look at the job description. And let me know and you know, submit your, your resume if you think it's going to be something you want to explore. And I said, okay, well, I was still very heads down thinking about doing my own thing. But I said, okay, let me just send it in. Let me just give this a chance and see what may come of it. And I talked to the guy who was basically the startup advocate, global startup advocate for AWS for five years. And we instantly hit it off. I was like, wow, this guy, he, he gets it. He's been in startups. He was in places like Tumblr, uh, heading up engineering. He was at Oscar Health, Betterment. Like, he gets startups and he gets what they need. 
And we were just very much were simpatico. And so I was like, okay, maybe, maybe this is worthwhile. If he could be at AWS for five years, maybe I should give this a shot. And so I went through the whole process. Uh, they call it a loop. So for folks who have ever been in AWS hiring process, you know that the hiring process is pretty rigorous. They go through a whole series of interviews. They really drill down into these things called leadership principles, which are the 16 core principles that Amazonians work by and really defines how we get things done. And so it was a very rigorous interview process, but I got through and they gave me an offer to be the startup advocate for Asia Pacific Japan based in Singapore. Now, I'm not doing this uh, podcast right now from Singapore, I'm actually in New Jersey. So what happened was when I got the offer from AWS, I was in Singapore at the time, this was late March, 2020. And I'm looking at the news reports of what's going on in the US with COVID and it's unreal. And I was like, well, I really gotta go back. I gotta get my family and I can't get started anyway so i have to go back just for the visa process to work its way so i accepted the offer moved up my flight to wednesday of that week didn't even realize that that was the last united airline flight that was going between singapore and the us they were closing down the route that day and so i didn't even realize that and like the the flight was full of like united employees going back to the us from singapore the flight, by the way, just as an aside, the flight from San Francisco to New York was about the emptiest flight I've ever been in my entire life. I mean, there was more people, more flight attendants and crew than actual passengers. So I got back to US and then a week later, Singapore goes on a two month lockdown and like everyone's scrambling, go, well, how's Mark going to start? And so they just shifted the role to have me start in the US. So that's a little bit of my journey of getting to AWS. And it's been an interesting year plus since I've come on board. It definitely has the benefits of being in a startup in many ways, but also the benefits of being in a big global company where you have just a lot of resources and a lot of recognition that definitely helps to get things done. Absolutely. I think uh, AWS is where all the cloud uh, entrepreneurs, I mean, the SaaS entrepreneurs are very much aware of. Everyone is building their tech stack or at least you know, engaging with the AWS ecosystem. So that's always there. Is your base still uh, rooted in Singapore? I mean, eventually you will be coming back to Singapore at, at a later point in time, maybe next year. Is that the case? It's still an option. Okay. <laughs> We're still in a very fluid situation, but with countries now opening up and now Singapore is opening up these travel lanes. I think sometime next year I'll be in Singapore. It may be like a multi-stage thing, who knows? But right now, what's interesting is that even with my initial focus being Asia Pacific, a lot of my work ends up being global. And a lot of that is due to things like Clubhouse, where the audience could be listening in from anywhere in the planet and often is. I get listeners from Africa, a lot of Africa, like startup founders, uh, folks all obviously throughout Asia, as well as Europe, uh, the Americas. So it's a very much a global audience that we end up attracting for the shows. And uh, I'm just curious, what really led you to uh, be long on uh, the audio space in Clubhouse? I mean, you know, you could have experimented with a bunch of other things. Your blog is a super hit as well. You manage uh, your blog for the last, how many years? I think DevWiz Ops, it's been there for almost like, close to a decade, if I'm not wrong. No, not a decade, more like four years. I started when I was at a Stack Overflow 
which is like a whole nother story. But no, it has been going on for a while. I, I think I've had like 200 posts. So it's definitely has a pretty regular cadence. And that doesn't even include the other blog newsletter I do, which is called the Enterprise Sales Forum. So, and again, that's another story, a community I started, but that was for enterprise salespeople, people that were selling like in the B2B space, uh, because that was my background as a founder, having to figure out how to sell to big companies and what that whole process was like. And so when I started advising startup founders, a lot of them came from product and engineering and didn't have sales experience. So I just said, hey, you know, why don't we just get together instead of me giving you all this advice one-to-one, we can all do it as a group. Wouldn't that be more scalable and fun? Hey, well, we can have beers and have like food and we can just chat about all the different challenges that we're facing. And that just ended up building out into another whole group. And so around that, I have a newsletter. So it's, it's similar to Dev BizOps, but the focus is not, you know, instead of engineering leadership, it's focused on sales professionals. A lot of content. Yeah. So there are a lot of global sales communities, I think. Pavilion is also one of a uh, very famous one in, in the US. And uh, they just recently changed its name to Pavilion. So I'm just curious, like um, for the last seven, eight months, you have been very active on Clubhouse and talking to a lot of people globally from, you know, making a lot of rooms, etc. So you're very long on the audio space, it seems to me. So uh, what are your thoughts on those? I mean, you could have operated in other platforms as well, maybe maybe video, YouTubing, or let's say a lot of uh, other blogging or Twitter uh, platforms, but uh, Clubhouse especially, why so? Because I have a face for radio. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it really does have that radio feel, and I'm not sure uh, how many folks have spent any, any time at all listening to radio, but radio was very integral to my, my upbringing and background. Because radio was like the place you went to, like to find new music. And yeah, maybe I'm a, a bit older than a lot of the folks that might be listening, but you know, I grew up with radio. I would always write down what the top hundred songs of the of the year were. And I had that kind of as like a like a, a zine or like a, a fan magazine. And I would have like a I had a like fan magazine when I was growing up that I would produce and it would have like you know what was new in music. So like radio was always like a thing I was fascinated about and radio shows and, and the banter. And fast forward, you know, several decades later, we have video. So why doesn't everyone just do video? But I look at video as very, it's a much higher, heavier lift. You, know, you got to think about the production values, not only just of the audio, but the video quality. And there's just a lot more moving parts with it. And for me, I just said, well, what? When, isn't it just easier to just have a conversation like we're doing right now without all of that extra heavy lifting of video, which I think creates a very different dynamic. I think video certainly works well. You know, I have a lot of my colleagues at AWS that do some wonderful Twitch streams, for example, or a few that have some pretty uh, fast growing uh, YouTube followings. But for me in particular, when I, when I heard about Clubhouse, and I started using it earlier in the year it really just sparked something in my mind. It said, look, this is really super fascinating. People are getting on and doing this thing on Clubhouse. And it's so easy just to get on and to have really meaningful conversations and engage with people that are listening. And that was the thing that I thought was even more fascinating. In my role as a startup advocate, a lot of what 
is important for us is this idea of engaging. You know, how do we get people to come into the fold? You don't even have to be part of AWS. It's like you're interested in startups, you're interested in cloud technologies, you're interested in innovation. Okay, great. Let, let's have a conversation. Maybe AWS can be part of part of what helps you to build whatever it is that you have. And that was what was wonderful about Clubhouse is that you can have these spontaneous rooms, you can maybe schedule them out, whatever your process was, you can have these really wonderful enriching conversations with whomever, anywhere around the planet. And it was great that just listening to different rooms, you would have CEOs of far along companies. I remember uh, one conversation in particular, the CTO of, of Zero, the big accounting firm, right? And just, it was, he was on, I just found it randomly. And it was such an awesome conversation. And that's what really clicked for me is, this could be such a great mechanism for us as AWS and the AWS startups team to connect with folks that are just curious about, you know, building startups, building in the cloud, that we can invite people that are building on the cloud to share some of their stories about why they started their startup, what were some of the lessons learned, and build that as a community. And that was the, the second thing that I thought was really interesting about Clubhouse is that there's a lot of different places you can do audio spaces now. It's not just Clubhouse. And we do, I do keep my eye to what's going on out there in with the different trends and the different tools that are out there. But Clubhouse definitely had this concept of community building built in from the get-go. And that's what's interesting. And so from middle of March of this year till now, we now have 6,700 members of our community in the AWS Startups Club. And that's just a real, that's just a start. You want to be able to grow out that community. We also want to be able to do different things. So really think about the long-term about how to build, grow and scale communities, something that I'm very passionate about and be able to do that in different medium as well. Like, so Clubhouse is, is really kind of the first leg of a bigger vision. You know, one of our leadership principles at AWS is think big. And we have plenty of think big ideas. You know, some of them weren't so hot. Some of them have been, been, have been just revolutionary. I mean, AWS itself was a think big idea. What if we took all this extra server capacity now that we've re-architected amazon.com and we've built out this microservices architecture, it's very services-based and we've decoupled everything but now we have all this extra capacity. What do we do with that? That was a think big idea that certainly has revolutionized the way that we think about compute and the way that we think about building from the ground up. So, you know, my think big idea is that we can coalesce this, this momentum around Clubhouse to create an incredibly engaging community that can be of value to all startup founders. Wow, that is, that's so good to hear, to be honest, Mark. <laughs> and uh, rightly, uh, you touched upon your favorite topic, actually, community building, right? I mean, you absolutely love that. You've written a book as well, Community in a Box. Uh, talk us through, you know, some of the salient pointers of uh, Community in a Box. So I think you published it uh, last year, if I'm not wrong, and uh, many of the folks have been reading it, uh, and they would be giving a lot of amazing reviews around that as well. So what are some of the, let's say, top three salient pointers that you tell to our listeners? I mean, top-notch pointers from your book, Community in a Box, if I may ask? Three things. Well, this comes down to three things. Uh, this will be interesting. The very first thing, 
whether we do, you know, three, five, 10, whatever, the very first thing is you got to ask yourself why. Why from your perspective? Because community building is super hard. If you're going to build something from scratch, it's just like a startup. Like you got to be passionate about it. And if you're not passionate about it, it is a slog. It is, there's a lot of not fun aspects about community building. We just got to get that off the plate immediately. It is a really heavy involved tasks because there's a lot of ups and downs. You know, you will hit the highs, but then you will hit the trowel of sorrows. So understand why this community is important for you. And the flip side, understand why a community is important for the people that you want to be involved in the community. I often talk about this concept of with them, what's in it for me? And you really got to kind of flip that on its head and understand from your potential members perspective, why do they think the community is important for them? So that's number one. The second thing is, I mentioned the highs and lows of community building. And there'll be a time when you launch where it's really exciting, feels super awesome. And then things are going to start like getting off track, going to hit some snags. You know, you're going to have like a few maybe like really awesome events or things that happen. And then people drop off. There's less momentum. And you start to, you know, go from those highs. Then you go all the way down to the trial of sorrows and you think, my God, maybe this community is not for me. Maybe Maybe I should give it up. And that is the exact wrong time to give up. And it's because a large part of community building, which I think is lost on many, many folks, is consistency. That's the big C word of community. It's consistency. And the reason I I mentioned consistency is that it's hard to, if you always have a short-term view, to understand or to kind of see what the light is at the end of the tunnel. And so if you're always thinking about the short-term and short-term results, whenever you hit a snag or roadblock, you're going to think that's it. Because you haven't really thought about what the long-term looks like. So you want to set up your community to to grow and scale in your favor. And the way you're going to do that is understanding that if you set up whatever you're doing from a long-term perspective, so what that means practically speaking is if you create events and that events are the big driver for your community and for community engagement, don't schedule the first one event or two or three events schedule out for the next six months. And that may seem like really far away. It may seem like way extra planning that's necessary. But I will tell you from experience, setting that six month plus plan helps you so much in thinking about how to get through the, the struggles that you have, sometimes in the middle part of building community. So you have hope, you can keep the faith and you have that vision, that North Star, that pulls you along. So that's the second part. You got to be consistent. And just as a point of reference with Clubhouse, for example, with Clubhouse, what we did was, even though it it can be helter-skelter with the scheduling, because I'm working with lots of different teams across AWS, we knew that we had to do a show every Tuesday, Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Same in EMEA. So we have a show that is 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, 4 p.m. London time every Monday, Wednesday. 
And we stuck with that schedule. And we just figured out, like, if we didn't have, like, a guest, then we'll just fill in with some other topic. But having that consistency was so integral to getting to where we are now with the size of community that we're at. And just for a point of reference, like, how many shows have we done so far? We've done 150 shows since starting the starting the regular shows back in March of this year. 150 shows. So maybe we've gone a bit overboard and obviously I had like other people helping out in EMEA, in APJ, a lot of contributors, but that's what consistency means. It means doing something on a regular basis and committing to it. So the third thing that I'll wrap up with here is uh, think about community as a flywheel. If you have that long-term perspective, what is going to be the things that create the momentum so that it builds upon itself over time? And that's going to be incredibly important because what the flywheel does, and just for a point of reference, we talk a lot about flywheels at Amazon, and that was really the early driver for creating growth. And if you look up Amazon flywheel, do a search, you'll see kind of like these early like chicken scratch drawings of like a wheel and things spinning off and things about pricing and quality and all that. Uh, Those were all great in terms of building up Amazon's business. And it did create the momentum to get to where we are today. Community is also a flywheel. And you need that flywheel as you start to grow and scale the community and go from that nascent launch period. Otherwise, it's going to be super hard to continue the growth because you'll always be doing things manually and you'll just continue to struggle. And over time, you should struggle less as a community founder. And I look at the community flywheel from three specific mechanisms. The first is you got to have content. Content's value. That's what people are interested in. You know, it could be your webinars, your podcast, your blog, whatever it is. It starts with content. It could be QA, but you also need to get people excited about something. You know, it's hard to get excited about blogs and newsletters. So what is that? What is building anticipation? I call that events. Now, events could be a regularly scheduled podcast, it could be clubhouse shows, it could be whatever it is. But something that gets a large group of people together to consume content at one time and enable some engagement. So that's an event. And hopefully as we get post-COVID, we'll be doing more events in person, which would be wonderful. Then the third part of that, that whole flywheel, peer-to-peer engagement. What I mean by that is a community is not just a, it's not an audience. People build audiences. Like if you're if you're a musician, you want fans. That's great. But that conversation is very unidirectional. And it's very much you to them, one to many. Community is very different. The way community works is that it's a network of people coming together, that many dynamic. And the reason community works and creates so much value is this idea called Metcalf's Law. Now, Metcalf's Law, if you know anything about the engineering world and uh, the world of Ethernet. Robert Metcalf was the inventor of Ethernet, and his, his law was when you connect lots of different nodes in a network together, you create exponential value. They call it the, like the N-squared theory. Well, the same happens with people. You connect two people together, okay, that's interesting. You connect five, more interesting. You connect millions or billions, you create immense amount of value. And you look at social networks today, And that is what you see. You see, okay, LinkedIn, for example, it's a network of 700 million plus people around the planet, all around professional interest. So 
when you're thinking about community, you really got to think about how do you enable all those one-to-one -one engagements with people in a many-to-many -many network of relationships. And so creating mechanisms allow for people to reach out to each other and build those relationships. That's what drives even more value because they get more involved and they may want to become content contributors. They may want to volunteer. And so now you get more content because you have more people that are active and engaged. That goes to your events. That brings more people to want to engage on a one-to-one -one basis and to build that peer engagement and increase the value exponentially. So that's the third part. So uh, when you think about community long-term, you want to grow and scale, you really got to enable that flywheel to work, the flywheel that contains content, creates anticipation through events, and enables peer-to-peer -peer engagement. Absolutely. I absolutely love the third part uh, that you rightly mentioned. It's about content. Definitely, yes, you need to have good content. And secondly, you'll have to have or curate amazing events as well, whether whichever platform you are using. It could be, let's say, Clubhouse, or it could be a bunch of other networks people have been using, let's say, on Bevy, on Mighty Networks, and uh, other, other platforms as well, Circle.so, etc. The third one was very interesting, and that really piqued my interest is because you're talking about a very complex thing happening in that flywheel, right? So usually people join communities for transformation. You know, they want to be associated to a particular community or they join a particular community because they want to have a transformation. Let's say they are at one, they want to go to 10. And to enable people to go through that transformation from one to 10, or let's say 10 to 100, you need to have a lot of stronger peer-to-peer -peer engagement where all these nodes of the network needs to be connected and you know the flywheel effect or the network effect really kicks in over there now that's an interesting one if i were to ask you mark how do you create that element of stronger peer-to-peer -peer engagement because community is not an audience right uh, clubhouse many people say that of course it's a club club has a lot of uh, community members but primarily sometimes it becomes an audience right you are on a show there are a lot of people just listening in you know silently passively so it just becomes an audience but a stronger community is created only when you have stronger peer-to-peer -peer bonds where people trust each other within that community because there either there is a strong gated paywall to have access to that particular community or uh, the curation has been done so amazingly by the community members that every node within that particular network is really strong enough to add value to the community as well. So I just want to know, is there an architecture to build this stronger node or you know peer-to-peer -peer network because you have a strong experience uh, in the community, just not from AWS, but Stack Overflow is a great community as well, right? People who are just starting off, they absolutely love it. And uh, you know that a community is good when people really vouch for it, right? They tell their friends, they tell their relatives that, hey, you should also join that. So just wanted to know your thoughts on that as well. I'll touch a little bit on, on that last part and maybe work backwards. You know community is working when the word of mouth takes hold. In Stack Overflow is a perfect example. Joel and Jeff, who are the founders of Stack Overflow, had very... Uh, well-read blogs in the developer community. When they announced they were doing Stack Overflow, they had 30,000 people that joined that community right off, the, right off the bat, like first day. And it was amazing. But what was more amazing is those early users led to having 1 million users in one year, from 30,000 to 1 million, because 
it was powered by word of mouth. So never discount the value of word of mouth. When you're doing something good, people talk about it and people want their friends and colleagues to be part of it. And that's an important dynamic because going back to the, the crux of your question, it's how do you create that peer-to-peer engagement? And I will say that a couple of key foundational theories around community building are important here. The first is not everyone's going to be engaged because they want to just consume. And you got to create an environment that is okay with that. Think Stack Overflow, we're, we're fine with people just not with no username, accessing Stack Overflow, and just maybe pulling some code or getting some knowledge and then going their, their separate ways. And we're totally fine with that because you got to create that environment that lets people in the door to see what the community is about and understand what the value is. Now, some of those people are going to say, wow, that's super valuable. And I kind of feel like I want to be part of that. So they'll take the next stage and maybe they'll be moderately involved. Maybe they'll you know, write some comments. They'll maybe upvote some things. Maybe they'll even ask a question. And, but that may not be on like all the time doing stuff. But there's going to be that small percentage. You're going to look at the Stack Overflow. They're going to get involved. And they're going to have the bug that just drives them to want to get more and more involved. They want to be part of the game or they want to be involved in the community. They want to be you know, in that discussion. So they, they dive in a little bit deeper and they become even more, uh, more common contributors. They get more engaged. Maybe even like at, at some level down the road, they become a moderator. And the reason I talk about this kind of this progression is because that's how often people get involved in communities. Most people are going to be lurkers. And a lot of social networking theory basically lays out that your community will generally have a, you know, a 90, 9, 1 ratio. There's a rule, the rule of 90, 9, 1, where 90% or even like greater will be lurkers. They're not going to be involved. 9% will be moderately involved. 1% will be the super users or the, the super fans. And so when you think about community, you don't worry so much about the 90. You give them opportunities to observe, to be, to listen in, to engage where they, they feel comfortable engaging. But your real community is that 1% because that's what drives all a large percentage of the engagement in your community. So you really got to focus on your fans. And for Clubhouse, that's a good example where everyone thinks, oh, it's just an audience. But in fact, there's a really interesting dynamic because if you do things with consistency, remember the, the second part of what I mentioned before about the three things to share about community, if you do things in a consistent manner, people are like, wow, this is really cool and I want to listen in some more. And maybe I have some questions. And so what you see is you have these regular listeners on our Clubhouse shows for the AWS Startups Club that are there almost every show. And they share the show with their networks, their people that they follow. And they're like, hey, there's this really great thing that AWS is doing and Mark is hosting. You should check it out. So they start sharing. And so you have word of mouth. And that really is a community dynamic. Now, does Clubhouse do a really great job with like the one-to-one engagement? Not so much. I mean, back channel, wave. I mean, I think they're interesting. People certainly are using them. But I wouldn't necessarily call that a great mechanism for that peer-to-peer engagement. You really need maybe something else in addition to Clubhouse or in addition to other channels that you're working with to to bring people in the fold, to have those ongoing discussions where people can really, really can connect one-to-one and build those, those relationships. 
And that mean that may mean having another place. You know, and that could be, you know, some of the tools that you mentioned. I know a lot of folks do things on Discord or Slack. So that's also kind of the, the long-term thinking is understanding just from like a channel and a platform perspective as you're building community, where does your community mostly live? Something important to think about is you start to activate the three components of the community flywheel. Content, events, and then peer-to-peer engagement, yeah? Yeah. Where are you doing these things? And does it make sense to do all these things in kind of one thing, one platform? Probably not. You know, when I was doing the enterprise sales forum, those were in-person events. And the content was that, the peer-to-peer engagement was that. But we also recognize that there needed to be a, a thing between events to keep people connected to what was going on in the broader community. And that's when the newsletter started. Yeah, I think uh, since last year, there are a lot of digital communities that are sprouting in different parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the, like you rightly mentioned, Slack, Discord, Discourse, and a lot of, lot of other tools that have been currently being used to, uh, you know, activate communities. But as you rightly mentioned in the very start, uh, community building is really tough. It's complex. It's not easy. People give up even after a few months or years, because like you said, right, 90% of the people, I love that rule that you had, 99 and 1. 90% of the people in the communities are lurkers. So what happens is that sometimes the highly enthusiasts are getting demotivated because there's a huge population of lurkers in the community, right? It's We are just consuming content, not contributing a lot. So what I'm thinking is that, is there a possibility that if you gamify the system and you give um, awards or prizes or swags to the first 1% or maybe include the other 9% as well, that would uh, really trigger the lurkers who are in that 90% range to be much more active and uh, try to come in the next two tiers and try to moderate or actively involve in the community. Yeah, there definitely is. It's uh, a lot of this actually starts with the, those true fans, that, that 1%, because you're creating not only a community, but you're creating a culture. So go back to the first principles. The community is really just a gathering of people that have common interests and values. Sometimes I think we forget about the values part of that definition. And so as you're building a community, you really got to think about what are the values that are important that you want to foster? You know, so for example, in the communities I foster, a very significant, very key part of those tenants, the beliefs that we have about what this community represents is that it should be opening, welcoming, and inclusive. And so we focus on diversity, equity, inclusion from the get-go. So you gotta really think about those tenants or those beliefs that set and form the culture. And the fans are gonna be the, essentially the enforcers of that community and of the culture, reinforcing those principles that you, that you start off with. So if you don't have the right people doing that role of forming and setting that culture, then, things will go awry very quickly. And you're going to have, what generally happens is that you have a community of people that are super engaged, but they close off themselves to all the other people, to all the lurkers are moderately involved and becomes this this micro community that becomes very antagonistic to newcomers. And sometimes Stack Overflow has been accused of being a little bit like that. I'm not necessarily saying yes or no to that, but what I would say is that you know, those appearances and the, the way those super fans or the, 
very involved users of the community, how they engage with others outside of that small network or cadre of, of other top users, that could have an impact. So you got to make sure you get that culture right at the very start. And if you do, then those super fans, those top users, top members, they become your best ambassadors for bringing people into the fold, getting people to volunteer, to contribute. And that's really the most important part about thinking about how to get people involved, make it welcoming and create and enable people to be ambassadors for what the community stands for. And then there's other things that you, from a tactical standpoint, yes, you can gamify things. I mean, Stack Overflow is kind of popularized that idea of using badges and reputation points to get people to want to be involved. I think helping people understand what good contributions are can be super helpful in elevating those out to the broader community like, hey, you know, we want to recognize uh, Shatish over here who had this really great contribution or, or Sarah who wrote this really great post. So you want to elevate those so people understand what good content looks like and what good contributions really do. But that also creates another thing because it sets in people's minds like, okay, this is something, this is how I can be involved. So it opens up the pathways for people to want to engage. And, and the last thing I would say is, depending on the nature or type of community, there's definitely ways that you can incentivize, even beyond just gamification, incentivize people to be involved. So this is when you can think about maybe bringing in partners or other organizations to offer prizes, awards, recognition, opportunities. You know, oftentimes when I would work with companies that would want to build their own internal communities, I would say, you know, the easiest thing to do for developers is get them passes to tech events. And you might think, oh, you know, expensive tickets or whatnot, but that has such an impact on how developers like experience and feel about their employer and their work. So, and you can do these things and they, they really are low cost when you think about the ultimate value that it creates because it gets people to want to be engaged and to want to dive deep in the community. Absolutely. I think a lot of your um, amazing um, thoughts that you shared, right? One is setting the culture code really right in the early days by recruiting the first set of ambassadors or moderators who will really set the direction for the community. And uh, secondly, uh, you said something that really picked my interest that a lot of SaaS founders are really going the path of a community-led growth. Like previously, it was like sales-led growth and there was product-led growth. Now they're realizing that, you know, if you build a community today, if you're building a product for sales uh, professionals, or let's say the software community uh, members, then the easiest way is that if you can nurture the community for a few months or years, then the, your first employees, your uh, first referrals, your first members of um, uh, the product users can be your community members itself. So community led growth is really taking off. And I just wanted to know some of your thoughts on a new concept that is coming in the world of community, which is like um, centralized and decentralized community. So previously, a lot of, you know, uh, enterprise communities are very centralized. So they, they are hosted within the entity and uh, you have a community manager overseeing the work or, you know, moderating the activities within the community. And, uh, and it, it is usually sponsored by the company that they are hosted within, right? And those are very famous ones. Trailblazer from uh, Salesforce is also a great community. And a lot of great companies have communities within their entities. But now the uprise of the decentralized community where, you know, a lot of anonymous members become a part of a community. And they are one of the amazing examples is the crypto communities, something that's happening in a lot of Discord servers. 
is what they're trying to, you know, the tokenomics of these communities is that they're giving a percentage share of the equity to the community members in the very start. So eventually a lot of these ambassadors and um, early adopters, or let's say the, uh, you know, evangelist will hold a stake in the future of community as well. Just wanted to um, know any of your thoughts about this new trend that is really coming up in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, I equated before in our conversation, community oftentimes feels like a startup. How do startups recruit often? They don't have the funds like uh, big tech companies have to pay engineers or successful sales reps and all that. So that mechanism, what is it? It's equity, options, stocks, right? So go into the community space. You know, how do you incentivize? Because you don't, you're not a corporation, you're not a company, you don't have shares to give. So you know, I think the the idea of incentivizing people through cryptocurrency, these coins, I I think it's interesting, but I also caution folks to understand that a lot of communities, much like a lot of startups, they they fail. They don't. So think about the the bigger incentives and the reasons why you want to be part of a community. And vice. And on the flip side, as a as a creator, as a community builder, you really got to think about what is the real value of creating a a coin as some basis of incentivization for building community is because otherwise it, it almost sometimes feels like a MLL scheme where all you're doing is you're trying to bring on people into community because you want the value of the coin to increase. And that's a very, very thin line, right? It's a very thin line. Feed us a lot with like NFT communities. And this is not the bash NFTs. I think there's super amazing value that, that can be provided for creators. But there's also folks that are coming into the NFT space and the crypto space that definitely don't have the best interest in mind of the members of that community. And so you just got to, you from the outside looking at these communities, you really got to understand like, what is the long-term value? Like, what am I really getting out of this? As opposed to just like a group of people getting like fanatical about a coin or, you know, some crazy gifs, right? And as a community builder, just be cognizant of the types of values that you're incentivizing and the type of culture you're creating. The culture should be about creating real sustainable value for the community members. And whatever, for whatever topic that is, outside and much further and above that of creating value around a coin. You know, coin, again, interesting as part of that incentivization scheme, but think about the broader strokes of what you're trying to create and the value you're trying to add to this world. Awesome. And uh, last few questions, Amak, is that what are your, some of your favorite communities in the world? I mean, of course, you, AWS could be one of them, and, but I would just love to know any of the favorite uh, communities that you really like or uh, love some of their, uh, you know, some of the narratives around those communities as well. Just like to hear it. Yeah, I love what uh, Startup Grind has done. Dave Anderson, you know, now he has a company called Bevy, but it really started because uh, he wanted to get startup founders together. And I think it's been so amazing to see how that's grown across the world and all the enthusiasm. I'm a regular contributor to the Start Grind blog, for example. I just released a topic uh, just uh, just yesterday on the difference between CTOs and VPs of engineering, if anyone's curious. So that's one I have a huge amount of respect for. Uh, another one is, is CMX itself, because I think I started my journey as a community builder not knowing what I'm doing. And that was, I made tons of mistakes. 
it's okay because I'm, you know, I have this kind of startup experimental mentality. I like to try things. It was okay because from a, we have like this Amazonian thing where we talk about one way, two way doors. Like one way doors are decisions you make and you can't, you can't take them back. They're like big monumental decisions. Two way doors, you make a decision. If it goes wrong, you can always reverse course. So a lot of decisions that you make in life are two way doors. And that's kind of the way I, I look at things. But it would have been nice if I just had some folks I could talk to to bounce ideas off of. And that's what CMX has really created over the years is a great, great community for community builders. And likewise, there's community club as well. There's a, if you're at all involved in community, those are two communities I would definitely, definitely join and check out. Uh, and then one that's kind of more near dear my heart, my favorite part uh, with uh, the DevRel community on Slack, it's uh, just a really great place to bounce ideas off of. And it works so, so well just in helping you out through any sort of ruts that you have. Because being in developer relations or being a developer advocate, it's kind of a more of a, a newer type of role. And just having folks that are out there that are your peers to work with, again, it comes down to that one-to-one -one engagement value. It's such a valuable community. So those are just like a few that, for me, come to mind. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the conversation, Mark. I absolutely would recommend a lot of our listeners to actually read your book as well, Community in a Box, especially for community members and leaders. And uh, any um, thoughts on if, any of your favorite books apart from the book that you've written yourself? Uh, do you have any of your favorite novels or books that you would recommend to your uh, listeners? I honestly have like uh, favorites, but uh, actually a few that I'm reading now. I kind of read books kind of off and on. So this is one called Range right, with David Epstein. So I've been going into that. And then this other book, Centralism. So Greg, Greg McCown, McEwen, a really great book about how to reduce the things you're doing so that you focus your energies on the things that are going to be most high impact. And I think it's very easy for us, whether you're building a community or a startup founder. Like I talked to a lot of SaaS founders, obviously with AWS and a lot of their struggle and some of these struggles we talk about on Clubhouse is just trying to figure out like how to parcel out your day. So you're working on the things that, that move your, your SaaS startup forward, because there are a lot of things you, you can go down a path that take up a lot of time and have zero impact. So essentialism is kind of a good book to help you to say no to a lot of things, but not just for the, the sake of saying no, but the focus where you can do your best work. Got it. Thanks for those recommendations, Mark. Really love conversation. I think our listeners will really love and take the value out of your thoughts as well. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming to our show as well. Thank you, Saswar. It's been super awesome. Yeah.